Hey, welcome. Uh, so glad you're joining us online. I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Norton Camps of Grace Church, Greater Akron, and glad you're joining us. If you're somebody who joins us regularly, love for you to reach out. Let us know that. Send us an email, how we can pray for you. Yeah, if you don't have a church home, we'd love for you to come, and um, we'd love to meet you. 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock. We also have a 5.30 service. We'd love to meet you. Come and join us. A lot of things going on around here, and so we're thankful. We have brand new patio out there. Uh, and so we're going to have a service September 12th. Uh, we're going to have food and worship and prayer time together. So I'd love for you to just drop by and hang out with us September 12th. Beginning a brand new series today. Grab a Bible. Get a Bible. Get it in your hands. You got it? Um, some of you got your phone. I got you, right? But bring up the Bible app. Get it in your hands because here's the deal. In your hands is not simply a book. You're not just simply holding a book. But you're holding a library of books that is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Within this library, there's a mosaic of diverse colors that come together to paint this brilliant picture, this unified picture of Jesus and God's redemptive plan. That's your Bible. This library of books is a library of 66 books that is written by over more than 40 different authors, including kings, peasants, including doctors, fishermen, tax collectors, prisoners, persecutors of the church, former persecutors of the church, and those who were persecuted in the church, educated, uneducated, the rich and the poor alike, contributed to the writing of this library of books, written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in all kinds of different circumstances over a time period of around just over 1,500 years in this library, you still have it in your hand, in this library are many different kinds of literature. There's poetry, beautiful poetry, sermons, music, historical accounts, parables, prophecies, stories, love letters, and then there's correspondence to individuals and churches alike. There have been numerous attempts to burn it, to ban it, to eliminate it altogether, and they have all failed this library of books has been subjected to more abuse, perversion, destructive criticism, and pure hate than any other book. Yet it is an anvil, one author wrote, that has worn out many a hammer, and it continues to stand the test of time. The Bible. The Bible has been copied and circulated far more extensively than any other book in human history. And it is a library of books, then it is in that library of books that we find one book in particular, and it's the book of Ephesians. I'd love for you to open your Bibles there to the book of Ephesians because that book, that brilliant book called Ephesians is the letter, the book that I would love to focus on for the next 13 weeks together. 13 weeks through the book of Ephesians and here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you for the next 13 weeks to just simply read a chapter a day, a chapter a day and then start over the next week. And you'll be amazed after 13 weeks, chapter one on Monday, chapter two on Tuesday, do that for 13 weeks. You'll be amazed at how it begins to saturate your mind and your heart. You begin all of a sudden to see how it influences and renews your mind, how it all of a sudden redirects your heart. Today, I simply want to fly about 30,000 feet over the book of Ephesians to get a lay of the land, to see the forest before we jump into the trees. You have your Bibles open to the book of Ephesians, just an introduction today. The very first three chapters of this book are a virtual grand canyon of deep spiritual richness, theological wealth. The truth that it is explored and explained in the first three chapters explains all that you and I have in Christ, who we are in Christ, 
and the mysterious, beautiful plan of God to bring a new society to the earth, namely in the church. This is a canyon of deep spiritual wealth, deep spiritual richness that once you've walked in it, once you've experienced it and encountered it, you can't help but leave changed forever. Chapters 4 through the beginning of chapter 6, this book provides a practical feet-on-the-ground manual for how those deep spiritual truths transform the life of the follower of Jesus, how it transforms your life, how it transforms the church, how it transforms marriages. We're going to talk about that. How it transforms homes. We're going to talk about that. How it transforms your uh, life in the workplace. going to talk about that. And then it ends with a stark warning of the battle for those who are in Christ. The battle that is a cosmic battle. Ephesians is a book, a letter from a real person. And he's writing it to a real local church. But it is a letter from a real person to a specific local church that was meant for real people who belong to the global church, you and I today. And that letter begins this way. Paul, he's the author and apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people, some of your versions say, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace. He started his letters this way, grace and peace. He ends this letter, peace and grace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how it starts right away. The author of the letter identifies himself. We don't write letters that way. Uh, we, we text that way. Uh, that's one of the ways I like texting better than letters, right? Because I can see who's writing before I ever read what they say. That's kind of what Paul did. He, he texts, <laughs> right? We know who's writing the letter. And who's writing the letter is Paul. And that tells us something about the letter that we're going to look at. Just an introduction today. But you ought to write this down. Ephesians is a letter written by a real guy, Paul, with a real story. Going to tell you about it. Who encountered the really radical grace of God in his life. My, my guess is this. Many of you have heard of Paul. He wrote more books in the New Testament than any other author. 13 books or letters in the library you have in your hand. One author said this, and I will quote, measured by true values, the Apostle Paul was the greatest man, he said, who ever lived on this earth with the exception of the man Jesus Christ, who was in a class by himself. Other authors have noted that apart from Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is the most important and influential person in the Christian movement. But here's what you need to know. Like you've heard of Paul, right? And, and these authors looking back say, man, he's the most important. He's the most influential. He's the greatest man apart from Christ who ever lived. But Paul wouldn't agree. Paul wouldn't agree. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for I am the least of the apostles. You see that? I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. What? Because I persecuted the church of God. I'm going to look at that. But by the what? Say this out loud. By the what? The grace of God, I am what I am. And there it is again. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but what? The grace of God that was with me. Paul's story was totally immersed in grace. If Paul were here, he'd want you to know that he wasn't always known as Paul. Before he was ever known as the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. 
Tarsus in modern-day Turkey is where Paul was born, around the same time as Jesus. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a Jew by birth of the tribe of Benjamin, probably named after the first king of Israel. He was educated by the best of the best in Jerusalem, Gamaliel, namely. Eventually, he was a Pharisee to the Pharisees, which made him, listen, an avid antagonist to this new movement of Jesus' followers called the Way. See, here's what you need to know. The death of Jesus, when they put Jesus to death, it didn't kill the movement that Jesus started. It only seemed to fuel it. Fact of the matter is this. Fact of the matter is, is the book of Acts details how this group of ordinary men and women who were huddled in a room in fear to begin with, but eventually in prayer, became a force equipped with the message of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God, And this movement turned the world upside down. And the more the church grew, do you know something? You know what happened? The more it incurred opposition, the more it experienced antagonism. Its leaders were jailed and threatened. And eventually, it culminated in one of its leaders being killed for his witness. His name was Stephen, often referred to as the first martyr of the church. And you can find his story in Acts chapter 7 after he gives this incredible history of the story of God, it says, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They're just running at Stephen. They rushed at Stephen and they dragged Stephen out of the city and they began to stone Stephen. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named, there's our guy. There's the author of the book of Ephesians. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. On into chapter 8, it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. That's our author. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The church is now scattered, not just simply in Jerusalem. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but there's our author, Saul, who would eventually be the apostle Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged both men and women and put them in prison. It is an understatement to say that Saul of Tarsus, who would eventually be the Apostle Paul, was not a friend of the early church. This new movement of Jesus was a threat to the religious norms, and Saul was going to make sure he snuffed it out once and for all. You go on and read this, that it says that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters so that he might go to Damascus and visit the synagogues. Why? So that if he found any who belonged to the way, which was the followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, Jesus was the, he was the way, the truth, and the life. And they called it the way. If he found any of those that were following Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So viciously, and violently developed a strategy to intentionally stop the spread of this Jesus movement until it all changed. As he neared Damascus with letters in hand to begin to drag these people out of a worship service, 
Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around Saul. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked a question. He said, who are you? Saul asked, I, I want to know who it is that's talking to me through this great light. <laughs> Look at the answer. Remember, Saul's persecuting the church. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. One of the things we're going to see in the book of Ephesians, and you can kind of see where it comes from, is that God has this plan for the church that's directly connected to Jesus, so connected that Paul was persecuting the church, and Jesus asked Saul this question, why are you persecuting me? And then he says to Saul, get up, go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Can you imagine? As the story goes, and you can read it on your own, Saul was accompanied by some others, and he's blind after this encounter for three days. Those who are walking with him are speechless. Saul doesn't eat or drink for three days. Eventually, God informs a man, a follower of Jesus, whose name was Ananias. He's in Damascus. And he informs him to go to the house of a man named Judas and even gives him the street address on Straight Street. And he says, when you get there, you're going to see Saul of Tarsus. He's going to be blind, but he's going to be praying. And Ananias, what I want you to do is place your hands on him so that he can receive his sight. Can you imagine Ananias? Ananias is like, uh, you sure? <laughs> you sure about this? Because... He was the guy who was doing the things to the church. And here's what God says to Ananias. He says this, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, which man? The man who was persecuting the church, the man who was dragging people out of their homes, the man who gave approval to Stephen's death, the man who wanted to do anything he could to eradicate the movement of Jesus Christ and his disciples. This man is my chosen instrument. He's my chosen instrument. You're going to find in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses those words that we are chosen instruments of God to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And you're going to see that play out in Paul's life if you read to the end of the book of Acts. And to the people of Israel, I will show him, this man, Paul, Saul of Tarsus at that time, how much he must suffer for my name. Don't miss this. Saul, who was sent to Damascus with papers to stop the spread of this movement of Christ, becomes Paul the apostle who is now sent by the will of God to spread the very movement he was trying to destroy. Look what it says. He spent several days with the disciples. This is a fascinating story. At once, this is all Acts 9, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus, the Jesus that he was trying to destroy. The movement of Jesus, he was trying to destroy. He began to preach, nope, he's the son of God. That's radical transformation. All those who heard him were astonished. I bet they were. And they asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? They're like, isn't he the guy that was against us? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. All of a sudden, he became this great apologist. The persecutor became a preacher. The murderer became a missionary. The antagonist became an apostle. And look what it says. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Now the one who was hunting became the hunted. 
What an incredible story. Ephesians is written by a real guy with a real story who really encountered the really radical grace of God in his life. Therefore, it should be no wonder to us that Paul in the letter of Ephesians is going to go to great lengths to expound on the radical grace of God in Christ, that when you experience it, maybe better said when you encounter it, maybe better said when it encounters you, it will knock you off your proverbial feet and leave you forever changed. When you encounter the radical grace of God in your life, it will knock you off your proverbial feet. It will shine a light onto your life that will show you the truth of who you are, the truth of who God is, and the incredible gift of grace available to you. The grace of God, friends, is not simply lyrics to your favorite song. It's not a cool name simply for a church. The grace of God is not some acronym to put on a t-shirt. It's not some stale theological term to be debated and defined in the halls of academia. It is a canyon to be experienced. It is a reality to be explored. It is a moment to be encountered. Grace, the grace of God is receiving from God just like Paul what I do not deserve, what I could never earn and probably should have never expected. When you walk into the canyon of grace, it will knock you off your feet and you will never be the same. Ephesians will lead us into that canyon. For some of you today watching this is your Damascus Road moment where the grace of God is going to encounter your life and you're going to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. For some of you, this series will be your trip into that canyon and my prayer is, is that you leave never the same. But Ephesians will walk us into the deep canyon of God's grace, the wealth of the riches of the grace and kindness of God. And you can have confidence, my friends, that we will be led there by somebody that's been there. And my prayer is, just like Paul, you will never be the same. There are those of you watching this right now, you think you have gone too far. You think you are too far gone. And Ephesians and its author are going to remind you that no matter where you're at, no matter how far you've gone, you have not roamed outside the reach of his incredible grace for you. There are some of you watching this who think you don't need grace. You're a pretty good fellow. You're a pretty good gal. And Ephesians and its author will remind you and I of our desperate need to experience and encounter the grace of God in Christ. Without it, we are dead. <laughs> the one who was sent with papers to persecute and imprison the church is now redirected by his encounter with the grace of God. And he now is an apostle sent by God, sent by the will of God to plant the very same church he was trying to eradicate. That is radical, amazing, transforming grace. Now, that's the author. To God's holy people, to the saints is what it says. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. 
I want you to know this. It'll get us ready for this study. Ephesians is written to a real church in a real city that really encountered the really revolutionary, I'm going to add those words eventually, grace of God. Ephesians is written to a real church in a real city. They have a real story, and they really encounter the really revolutionary grace of God. Paul, the one-time murderer of Christians, is now a missionary. Paul, the missionary, he made three different journeys. You can forget that, but he made three different journeys. And you might not be able to see this, but you can go back to the back of your Bibles, and a lot of Bibles have maps of his journeys. Uh, His first journey uh, is kind of seen in the red dotted line, but in his second journey... In his second journey, about 53 AD, Paul made his first visit to Ephesus. He literally goes clear up and around all the way over here. He's in Rome, eventually in Corinth. He's in Corinth. Rome is way over here. And so he eventually is going to end up there. But in his second journey, he comes clear around Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi. He's in Corinth. And then on his way back to Jerusalem, on his way back here, he's going to stop. And here's our city, Ephesus real people. And here's what happens. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left and sailed for Syria, accompanied by, remember these names, Priscilla and Aquila. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back. I'll come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. This is where they first enter Ephesus and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, which if you read the story, they were tent makers like Paul. And he leaves them there to plant this fledgling church that begins on this journey. Ephesus was this incredible city. It was the leading city in one of the richest provinces of the whole empire. Strategically located, it was a seaport, as you saw on the map. That meant it was a hub for for things to be shipped and transported. It was a financially significant city, economically diverse city. There was rich and there was poor alike. It was the epicenter, this is what I want you to remember, of spirituality. A very spiritual city that hosted 50 different temples to 50 different gods. But the most significant was the goddess Artemis or Diana. She was the goddess of fertility. Worship of her was devout and it was daily. Her statue was made from a meteor that they believed fell from the sky. In Ephesus, there was a fascination with the occult. There was a fascination with magic. They worshiped idols. There was all kinds of immoral sexuality even wrapped in their worship and other kind of pagan rituals. That's the city that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila plant this fledgling church. But on Paul's third journey, his third missionary journey, he made good on his promise and he returned to Ephesus, the church that had been planted by these tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. And when he returned on his third journey, he entered the synagogue. That's where the Jews would gather. He spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. You see how the apostle's preaching and he's trying to argue persuasively about that which he tried to eradicate. But some of them became obstinate. They didn't like it. And they refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. Now he becomes the one who's enduring the persecution. 
So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of this guy, Tyrannus. This went on for two years. Two years Paul is in Ephesus, very significant. And his work there is so significant so that all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's amazing. He was doing some significant work. In fact, God was doing some significant things, extraordinary miracles through Paul. So even handkerchiefs, imagine that. And aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Like, like Paul had a handkerchief or somebody gave him a handkerchief, he touched it. Like God was wanting to show and manifest himself in and through Paul in such a way these miraculous works were taking place. Such as that if you keep reading in Acts 19, there's this local group of like ghostbusters, the sons of Sceva. And they were so intrigued by what Paul was doing that they wanted to cast out their own demons. And so they would come to people who were demon-possessed and they would say, in the name of Jesus and of Paul, we cast you out. You read the story, it's fascinating. And when they try to do that, the demons respond to them. We've heard of Jesus. Uh, we're familiar with Paul, but who are you? And you read the story, it's like the demons jump on these, these seven sons of Sceva. They beat them up and they end up leaving naked and wounded. It's like a fascinating story. And after that happens, it says this, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. I would use that word as like awe and, 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 and amazement and reverence. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. All of a sudden, there's, something's happening here. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. <laughs> what? A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I read one conference that says that's several million dollars in our, in, in, in our currency. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Do you see this? This is the revolutionary grace of God moving in on a group of people, moving in on a church that when the church encounters the revolutionary grace of God, do you see what happens? Repentance happens. When you encounter the, when we, you, we encounter the revolutionary grace of God, all of a sudden repentance happens. They openly confess what they had done. They call sin what God calls it. Not just repentance, but revival. They're bringing their scrawls and they're, they're, they're burning them. Imagine the bonfire. Some of you, youth group back in the 90s and early 2000s, they were doing that kind of stuff. Uh, burning records, burning t-shirts, burning stuff. I mean, it started back here, right? What happens if you read in Acts chapter 19, word of the Lord spreads widely and grew in power. And you can count on it. When that begins to happen, there's opposition. The opposition, Acts chapter 19, is a man named Demetrius. He owned a local store that made statues to guess who? Made statues for the goddess Artemis. And all of a sudden, he realized that this revival that was going on in their town was going to cost him as a local businessman because that's how he made his living. And he begins to stir up a riot. As you can imagine, he's upset because the revival is threatening his pocketbook. So all of a sudden, if you read the story, they fill the amphitheater, which house, you could see about 25,000 people in there, right? 
and, and, and they, they, they filled this and there's this riot and there's this uh, incredible uproar and people are shouting, great is Artemis. They, they felt threatened that the worship of their goddess is threatened. It's interesting is the gospel of God's grace will always confront our idols. That's interesting, isn't it? You're going to see that even in the book of Ephesians. The gospel of God's grace always confronts our idols. When the grace of God encounters the church, there's repentance. When the grace of God, the radical, revolutionary grace of God encounters the church, there's revival. There's confession. There's people turning, leaving, burning, eradicating, walking away from the idols in their life. When the grace of God encounters the church, you can count on it. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be a reaction. You read the story. It's a fascinating story. But this church begins in this cauldron of activity. Paul makes it out alive. He ends up leaving, and now about seven years later, after he and his tent-making friends first go to Ephesus, Paul, the one who encountered the radical grace of God, finds himself seven years later after this event, seven years later in a Roman prison, probably on house arrest, writing to the church in Ephesus, the church that encountered the revolutionary grace of God. And the book of Ephesians is him reminding them of some things. Paul writes Ephesians while on arrest in Rome. He also wrote Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, while in a Roman prison. Somewhere around 60 to 62 AD is when he wrote. It's when Nero was at the end of his reign and going mad. Nero, the Roman emperor that did unspeakable things to Christians. And it's in that setting Paul writes the book of Ephesians. And he said to God's holy people, in some of your Bibles, it says to the saints in Ephesus. Saints aren't dead people you pray to. Some of you grew up in a tradition like that. But they're God's set apart people. That's what that means. Saints are simply means set apart. To God's set apart people in Ephesus. And the letter is for God's set apart people in Norton, Ohio. In wherever you're at, if you've said yes to Jesus. Those who've encountered the light of God's grace and have been commissioned by God into a new identity and live full of faith into their new purpose. It sparks a revolution in the church and in the community. Ephesians is a letter to a specific church for the whole church about the church. And when you realize who wrote it, to whom it was written, all of a sudden you begin to see that there's a rhythm to this letter that meant something to them and is extremely beneficial for us. As we fly over the six chapters, that's all that's there, <clears throat> of Ephesians, I would break it down simply this way. Chapters one through three, Paul's just going to mine the blessings for those in Christ. The, the, the incredible spiritual richness and wealth for those in Christ. The first three chapters of this book, Ephesians, are a virtual grand canyon of deep spiritual richness and theological wealth that explore and explain all that we have in Christ, who we are in Christ. They explore and explain the, 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 the mysterious, beautiful plan of God revealed in the church to bring a new society, his kingdom come here on earth. 
Paul is outlining the spiritual blessings of those who've said yes to Jesus. And those who've said yes to Jesus are in Christ. He uses that term almost 30 times in this letter. Can I tell you something, friend? You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. There is no in-between. And the first three chapters is all about sharing the deep spiritual wealth, the deep theological blessing for those who are in Christ. That's why he starts this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Quit walking around like a spiritual pauper, right? We are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The blessings of God's grace, the wealth of his kindness. Guys, can I tell you something? You're gonna see this as you stay with us in this journey. The first three chapters of Ephesians are this inventory of the deep and vast spiritual riches for those who are in Christ. In Christ, we are God's special possession. In Christ, we are God's chosen instruments. In Christ, we are adopted children into his family. In Christ, we are sinners that are redeemed by the blood of Christ. In Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. In Christ, we have a hope no one can take away. In Christ, we have the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead at work in us. In Christ, we are trophies of his kindness, trophies of his grace. In Christ, we are masterpieces in his hand. In Christ, we are part of the new community that God is forming called the church. In Christ, the walls are broken down and we have access to the Father. In Christ, we have a brand new identity that in Christ calls us into a new purpose that in Christ puts us in a new community called the church. First three chapters. In Christ, we don't have to walk around like paupers. We don't have to walk around like victims and destitute and defeated, but we can walk around embracing, experiencing, and encountering the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. But those spiritual blessings aren't enough for us just to study, know, debate, pontificate on, but they lead to the second part of the book. That's the behavior of those who are in Christ. That's the behavior of those who are blessed in Christ. What Paul does is he turns his attention to the implications of this, that the blessings, the blessings, the, how I know that I've encountered and experienced the blessings of being in Christ is it shows up in a life, in my walk. Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, because of the blessings in chapters one through three, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Guys, when the radical grace of God runs into our lives, we can't help but live out of that calling. True belief always alters behavior. Always. Christian worship is the behavior that is a response to the blessing of the gospel. When the grace of God interrupts and encounters our lives, it shows up in lives that are changed. It has implications for our lives. It has implications for our church and the way we interact with each other as the body of Christ in humility, pursuing unity, even though there's tons of diversity. 
It has implications for how we live in a world that doesn't always share or promote the same values. We're going to have countercultural values. We're going to embrace countercultural values. We're, we're going to we're going to we're going to extend this radical scratch your head kind of forgiveness. We're going to speak the truth in love. We're going to have a different posture on sexuality in relationships. We're going to live as children of the light in a world that many times is dark. That's what he's saying. The blessings affect the behavior. It has implications not just for the church and how we live in the world, but it has implications for our marriages. We're going to talk about that, that all the spiritual riches and wealth we have in Christ change the way we husband and the way we wife. It has implications in our families. I heard one guy say that if the gospel doesn't work at home, it's not working in your life at all. I guess where it's got to be put to work, it has implications for the workspace. It has implications beyond. That all of a sudden, selfless submission to each other become the response to the one who submitted himself so that we could have the benefits and the blessings of the gospel. The blessings lead to behavior. You can't have one without the other. Why are we spending 13 weeks in this letter? Because I know there are some of you watching this that when we talk about the first three chapters, you love hanging out in the deep canyon of those theological truths and all the spiritual richness, and you need to, and we need to. But for some of you, that's where you want to stay. You want your Christian experience to be this cerebral. You have notes, you go to 4011 Bible studies, but you can't stay in the canyon. The canyon must change you. The blessings lead to behavior. There's others of you, you want to go right to chapters four through six because you're like, just tell me what to do. And yet without exploring the deep canyon of the blessings that we have in God, your spiritual life will be like building a skyscraper with absolutely no depth to its foundation. It will topple. First three chapters are about the blessings for those in Christ. Chapters four, five, beginning of six are about the behavior those blessings lead to. And then he wants us to know at the very end that there's a battle against those who are in Christ. Look how he says it in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord, his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's saying this, that you want to ground yourself in the deep, deep, truths of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ in a way that transforms your life so that you are ready to take your stand, not against culture, not against your enemies of flesh and blood, but Satan is the formidable opponent. And so he's going to teach us how to take our stands and dress for battle. This book is of monumental importance. One of the reasons that I am so passionate about it is this, is because wherever you're at, wherever we're at as a church, it's important for us to remember the radical revolutionary grace of God. For some of you, you've never said yes to Jesus. And my prayer is maybe today, maybe as a result of this book, that you will encounter the, the, the light of his grace in a way that will knock you off your proverbial feet. In a way that will encounter your life and change you forever. Right there watching this, you can say yes to Jesus. And all of a sudden, your identity changes, your purpose changes, and your 
placed into the community this new society he's building called the Church of Jesus Christ. It has great implications, this book for us as a church, because when we encounter the revolutionary grace of God, we as a church can't be the same. We as a church won't be the same. But all of a sudden there will be repentance of sin. All of a sudden there will be revival. All of a sudden there will be a turning from and eradicating of, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the gospel will begin confronting the idols in our life. The things that maybe are good that we've made ultimate, things that we've placed in the place of Jesus. It's so important that we take this journey. It is so important that we remember these things. It is so important that you go into this canyon with me, this this beautiful adventure, and that we come out forever changed. You're saying, why is it so important? Because there's no guarantee. This church at Ephesus had someone else write him a letter. He said, in the end of your Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he walks among the golden lampstands. Jesus has a letter for them. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Sounds like it's starting good. They've stuck with the stuff. I know you don't tolerate wicked people. Good for you guys. That you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've preserved and have endured hardships for my name and you've not grown weary. You're like resilient, you're diligent, you're devoted, you're doing all the right stuff. Then he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. See, here's the deal. He says you've lost your first love. You stopped living in awe of the canyon of God's grace. So they were doing all the right things, but they had lost the engine of their first love being a response to all that God's done for them. The book of Ephesians. I hope that you'll begin reading it. I hope Monday, chapter 1, Tuesday, chapter 2, Wednesday, chapter 3, Thursday, chapter 4, Friday, chapter 5, Saturday, chapter 6, and we'll join you again next weekend as we begin this journey together into this incredible, incredible book called the book of Ephesians. God, teach us, encourage us, wow us, challenge us, and change us as a result of this journey. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.